would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14 for me, please? Psalm 14. Uh, the information uh, before the first verse, the superscription, tells us to, to the choir master of David. So this is a Psalm of David written for public worship. This psalm, or at least the words and message of this psalm, should be familiar to us. Um, Psalm 14 is repeated almost word for word in Psalm 53, and verses 1 through 3 of both psalms are repeated in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, not to mention the fact that the second half of Romans 1 is basically an exposition of Psalms 14 and 53. So if you ever want to feel inadequate, just try to preach a sermon that the Apostle Paul already has. Um, and you'll be in my shoes. Uh, but what does this tell us, that the repeating here? What does it mean when, when something is repeated in Scripture, not once, but twice, and even with more Scripture explaining what it means? What means it, it's important? Now, to be clear, the Bible only has to say something one time for it to be true. The Bible only has to mention something once for us to be obligated to believe it. But when it says something three times using basically the same words... We had better sit up and pay attention. We expect no less from the people around us. Right? When we tell our kids something once, that's enough. That's enough for them to be obligated to listen and obey. When we tell an employee to do something or our boss tells us to do something, once should be enough. But when we repeat ourselves or something is repeated to us, ears ought to be perking up. Focus ought to be sharpening. And we should be ready to listen and obey. So now let's look at the psalm. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your perfect inspired word. Thank you for giving us all that we need for life and godliness in this book. Thank you for this psalm and what it teaches us about you and about us. We pray that you would help us to see clearly and understand rightly what it says and what it means and what we are to do in response. Help us then by your Holy Spirit to do what we must. We pray that you would make us wise that you would cause us to seek after you, to call upon your name. We pray that as the world presses in all around us, that you would keep us from wandering, from turning aside and following something else. Keep us, help us for your glory. Lord, I pray for myself that that I would only preach what is true, that I would only preach what the text means and not what I think. I pray that you would give me strength to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is this message that's being repeated? And why is it so important? The message is that no one in themselves is righteous. The message is that man is fallen and trapped in sin. 
and that this sin nature causes him to foolishly reject God and to, to foolishly rebel against the holy God who made him. And if man is in rebellion, then he is already under judgment. This is the default setting of humanity. In John 3, verse 18, Jesus, said, Jesus says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. This is the default setting. This is where we are born in. It's important to know this. It's important to know that not only that there is a problem, but what the problem is. Because in order to fix any problem, you first have to know what's wrong. Not just the symptoms, but the underlying issue. It does no good to treat symptoms if the underlying issue remains undiagnosed and untreated. The symptoms will just keep coming back. About six months ago, we started having problems with our van's engine. It kept running rough, and I kept trying to fix it. I have a little code reader and just enough knowledge to get into trouble. So I changed the oil, and I changed some spark plugs, and I changed the air filter and kept resetting the computer, and the light kept coming back on. Finally, we took it to the shop for what felt like the 10th time, and they found that the coils connecting the spark plug to the engine were bad. So they changed those, and everything runs fine now. They found the root of the problem, the, the root of the problem that I didn't even know where to look at. I didn't have enough knowledge to even think about changing coils. So as I treated the symptoms, the problem was left untreated. God in his word is gracious enough to give us the specific diagnosis of the disease that afflicts every man, everyone born of man and woman. And this is just what Roman, or what Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Romans 1 and Romans 3 do. They pinpoint the underlying issue, the root problem, which is the total depravity of man. This doctrine, and doctrine really just means a truth as found in Scripture, tells us that since Adam, all men are sinners, through and through. Sin affects every part of us. Total depravity or radical corruption doesn't mean that everyone is, is as bad as they possibly could be, but it does mean, as one commentator explains, that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is motivated by the wrong principles, and that he is wholly unable to love God or to do anything meriting salvation. This, to my mind, is the most offensive doctrine in the world today. Because it goes against the grain of everything we've been taught by the world from the time we could understand words. The world tells us that we are basically good. And sometimes we slip up a little. Or we have learned bad behavior from those around us. It tells us that if we were left on our own, we would all turn out just fine. But the message of this psalm and the message of the whole of Scripture is fully the opposite. All people are born in rebellion. All people are born fools. And it is only when God sovereignly gives us eyes to see his wisdom that we come to a knowledge of the truth. So let's look at the first half of verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Here we see the disease identified. David puts his finger on the root of the problem. The fool says there is no God. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. And here the fool in his inner being denies God. Not just his existence, but specifically his authority. And so, if denying God is foolishness, what is wisdom? We, we need to know both of these. The Bible says wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
All those who practice it have a good understanding. And Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So when David calls the God denier a fool, he's not talking about his intellectual ability. He's making a moral judgment. There are only two options open for us. Wisdom and not, or knowledge of God on the one side and foolishness or rejection of God on the other. And the number of years spent in school are not related to either. This can be seen in the difference between the simple faith of the common farmer who never finished high school and the professor at the elite university who scoffs at the very notion of God. In many ways, in the most important way, the farmer is wiser than the professor, but not because he's secretly smarter. The wisdom is not from him, but from the Lord. It is a gift. The Lord has given him a heart of understanding. The man who denies God is a fool. He is a fool because he is defying the very one who created him. When he says there is no God, he's doing more than making an honest mistake. The fool is making a moral or theological claim. I will have no God. No one will tell me what to do. There are no true, rational, reasoned atheists. There may be friendly atheists. There may be atheists who are good neighbors, who give time and money to help others, but there are none who know there is no God. It is impossible to know this. It is impossible to know this because it is impossible to know that there... Let me... It is impossible not to know there is a God. There are only two options, foolishness and knowledge. Paul tells us it's in Romans 1, verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they have no excuse. They are without excuse. This is why he who denies God is a fool. And this brings up an important question. If God's existence, specifically his eternal power and divine nature, is as clear as Paul says it is, why would anyone ever be foolish enough to say there is no God? Well, this is because of what Paul tells us in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They say there is no God because in their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. They push the truth out of their minds and resolve to keep it there. They do this because everything about God is offensive to them. They hate Him and all that He requires of them. They hate that He is sovereign and they are not. And so they try to change even their very bodies to conform to their whims. They hate that He is holy and they are not. So they soil all they can get their hands on. They try to rob the relative innocence of others by flaunting their immorality for all to see. They hate that God is all-knowing and they are not. So they make radical claims that they have followed the science and now have a definitive answer about whatever it is they've studied. The question has been settled by their great learning. They hate that he is love and they are not. And so they try to redefine love to mean absolute acceptance without question. They hate that he is gracious and they are not, so they demand total surrender to whatever the current cultural trend is. They hate that he is wise and they are not, and so they exalt in their own foolishness and cry, there is no God. But this is nothing new. This is not something that just came about in the last five years. Fallen man from the very beginning has always hidden from God. He has always pretended like a two-year-old playing hide-and-seek. If I close my eyes and can't see anyone, no one can see me. 
There has never been a time when if we only had a time machine to go back to whenever, that everything would be better because everyone believed in God. In David's time, when he wrote this psalm, there were no atheists. Everyone believed in a God, if not multiple gods. So what we're talking about here is not only theoretical atheists as fools, we're talking about anyone who denies the God of the Bible as, he's, as he has revealed himself in his book. This covers everyone from the famous atheists who write books to the guy down the street who says, I like to think of God as fill in the unbiblical blank. When we design our own God or determine who he is like outside of who the Bible tells us he is and what he is like, we are standing right beside the atheist declaring, there is no God for me. And when this happens, when the God of the Bible is denied, the only thing that can follow is the outgrowth of the inward disease, which we see in the second half of verse 1. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Do you see the progression? Denying God, denying the God who has made them, leads to an inward corruption. And this inward corruption leads to an, outwork, an outworking of abominable deeds. And doing these abominable deeds mean there's no, means there's no room left for doing anything good. This is all a part of the judgment of God already laid out upon those who refuse to acknowledge him. This is the pattern we see in Paul lay out in Romans 1. People refuse to honor God and so become futile in their thinking. That is, they become foolish. And this foolishness leads to a darkened heart. And a darkened heart leads to more foolishness and worship of what is not God and so not worthy of worship. This idolatry leads to more judgment of God, and the judgment of God is for him to give the fools who are digging their own grave another shovel to dig with, which is dishonorable passions, which of course causes more hardening of the heart and a refusal to acknowledge God. And this refusal leads to more judgment and another shovel, so that the wickedness becomes even more explicit, more out in the open, until a full range of wicked things are not only done, but celebrated. And this is just what Jesus said, right? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. But even their love of darkness is a judgment. This is why fallen men rush, in, rush, rush insanely to do evil. It is because they have, as much as they are able, suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and declared that he will not rule over them. But who is in this company of fools who rush to do evil? Who is included in the phrase, there is none who does good? Oops. The answer, the answer is, apart from grace, the entire human race. Spurgeon says, what a picture of our race is this. Save only where grace reigns, there is none who does good. Humanity, fallen and debased, is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a dunghill without a jewel, a hell without a bottom. I can hear an objection. But I know people who aren't Christians who do good things. And you'd be right. As I said earlier, there are friendly atheists. There are Mormons who are good neighbors. There are Muslims who, have, who give time and money to others. There are even people who claim the name of Christian who do these things. But these relatively good deeds are not ultimately good deeds. Which brings us back to the doctrine of total depravity. Before we trust in Christ, sin affects every part of us. How we think, what we love, and what we do. Before we trust in Christ, there is no faith in Him. And Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So to say that another way, we aren't sinners because we sin... 
We sin because we are sinners. And everything we do outside of Christ is tainted with sin. A couple weeks ago, I picked green beans in the rain. We were going somewhere and I had to get it done like immediately because otherwise I would have been grumpy. Um, this wasn't a drizzle. It was pouring down rain and mud was everywhere, especially on my hands and my pants and my shirt and the beans. Anyway, Melissa texted and, and asked where I was, so I pulled out my phone and wiped my, pants, wiped my hands clean on my pants and tried to text her back, but I couldn't because my hands were too dirty. When I went into the garage, I tracked mud with every step. When I looked into the bean bucket, there was a 50-50 mix of mud and bean. <laughs> this is what total depravity looks like. In whatever I did, I spread mud. Everything was tainted with the mud on my hands and my feet and my clothes. In the same way, everything the natural man does is tainted with sin. There is no righteousness there because there is no Christ there. Relatively good acts are not ultimately good acts. Giving food to the poor will not save you. Only Christ will save you. And if this is true, then the next two verses follow. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. No matter how many times the fool says there is no God, there God sits on his throne. Denying his existence does not make him disappear, nor does it have any effect on his sovereignty. The Lord is there, and He is in control. He is there, and nothing is hidden from His sight. Just in the first line of verse 2, we see God's sovereignty. He is in heaven. We see, we see His omnipotence. We see His omnipresence. We see His righteousness and His glory. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men. The language here is, is the same as we find in Genesis 11, when the people of earth rebelled against God by refusing to fill the earth. They wanted to build a tower to the heavens, and they did. They built the biggest tower the world had ever seen. But the biggest thing they could build was small before the Lord. He still had to come down to see it. He still had to stoop, as it were, to see what it was they did. You see, the sovereign Lord of all the earth is not shaken by the biggest thing man can do. He still has to stoop to get a better look. Now here we're using human language to help us understand that God always knows the hearts of all mankind. God knows. He doesn't have to find anything out. He knows all things. But in the same way as in the defiance of Babel, when the fool defies God in the strongest way possible by saying there is no God, God must look down to see him. He is entirely unbothered by man. He is not Santa Claus or Tinkerbell. He doesn't need anyone to believe in him in order to exist. He is independent of his creation. And yet he does judge his creation, and his assessment of the children of man is not good. When the Lord looks down from heaven, he is looking for anyone with understanding. He is looking for anyone who is not a fool, anyone who seeks after him. Remember, there are only two options, knowledge and foolishness. What does God find? Is there anyone with knowledge? Is there anyone with a true understanding of himself who understands that he must seek God and be saved from his own foolishness? The answer is found in verse 3. Nope. Look at all the inclusive language. They have all turned aside. 
Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This should sober us. This is such a bleak picture of humanity. It is such an unpopular message, especially in a world of self-esteem and self-acceptance, in a world that tells you you can be anything you want to be. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no rules. This message sounds hateful. But nothing could be further from the truth. We can't really fix a problem until we know what it truly is. Not telling the truth about the problem will only make it worse. Affirming someone in their misunderstanding will only drive them further from the help that only comes from God himself. This is why we must understand that we are sinners. We must understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is really, really bad news. If we actually understand this truth, if we take it to heart, we should be crying out, Someone help me! This is bad! I need help! And that is exactly the place we need to be. To abandon all hope of being righteous before God on our own. It is only when we realize that, as Paul says in Romans 3, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We must be changed by God himself. He must do a miraculous work in our heart by the Holy Spirit so that we can see him for who he truly is and ourselves for who we truly are. He is Savior. We are sinners. On our own, we cannot understand God or who he is. We can't even understand ourselves. Left to ourselves, we think we're seeking God even as we run from him. We think we're righteous even as we're corrupt. We can't save ourselves. We must be saved from the outside. We must be saved by God himself. And when we understand this, we we now see the good news of the gospel as truly good news. Paul goes on in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. When we receive Christ and all He is for us by faith, we are made God's people. We move from the realm of the foolish to the wise. We now have the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. This is not some secret trick. It's a work of God in our hearts. But that doesn't mean we're now safe from all earthly harm. The foolish are still out there, and they still hate God. Psalm 14.4 Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. If the first three verses told us who the fool is and his character, the next three verses show us the outworking of this character. Here in verse 4, we see that the fool has no knowledge. And because of this, he attacks the people of God. Remember the two options, knowledge of God and foolishness. Those who refuse to acknowledge God as he is, hate him. And so they also hate all who represent him. All people are created in the image of God, and so an attack on any person is also an attack on, uh, against the God who created them. But this is especially true of God's people those he has called out from the world and made his own. 
Evildoers can't climb into, into heaven and tear God from his throne, but they can get to his people. And so they do, all the time. They make it a habit. Matthew Henry says they eat up God's people easily, daily, securely, without either check of conscience when they do it or remorse of conscience when they have done it. Instead of finding their satisfaction in God, they try to find it by destroying his people. Though Christ offers the living bread that came down from heaven in John 6 and promises that if anyone who eats of this bread will live forever, the, the bread being his flesh, the foolish reject the bread of life and instead live to do evil. And they do this because they have no understanding. They have no knowledge. They do not seek God. What David means when he says they do not call upon the Lord is that if they will not call upon the name of the Lord, they will have no regard for God or his people or his law. And again, we're back to the source of their wickedness in the first place. But even as they do evil against the, Lord, against the Lord's people, they are still under judgment. They still cannot weasel their way out of their guilt, even as they deny it. It is in their guilt that verses 5 and 6 of, of Psalm 14 make sense. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. As we read this psalm and look at the character and the actions of the fool, the one who denies God and the one who lives with no reference to him at all, and then as we look at the outworking of his character and the way that he goes out against the Lord's people, we might think that he has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness so much that he has no conscience left, that he is truly happy, satisfied in doing evil, and will, and will go on being happy his entire life, enjoying the fruits of unrighteousness. But verse 5 here gives us an insight into the true nature of the fool, even as he is doing evil, even as he is doing evil and as often and as easily as he eats a meal, even as he does this, God is still sovereign. God's law is still written on his heart, and try as he might, he will not be able to escape it. In high school, I had to read a short story by Edgar Allan Poe about a man who, carried, who planned and then carried out what he thought was the perfect murder. He killed his landlord and then hid the body under the floorboards. And later when the police came investigating the disappearance of the landlord and the strange noises the neighbor heard, that the, the man confidently let the police in and smugly answered their questions right over where he had hidden the body. He was way too smart to get caught. But as he answered their questions, he began to hear the beating of the dead man's heart, the one that was hidden under the floor. The questions from the police went on and the beating grew louder and louder until the man was compelled to show them what he'd done. Do you see, his conscience forced him to reveal the very crime he had thought he had so cleverly concealed. It's not always the case that the crime of the fool will be revealed so quickly, but it is the case that when evil is done, the evildoer is always waiting for the next shoe to drop. They're always looking over their shoulder, waiting to be caught. They know they've done wrong and deserve judgment. Have you ever been speeding and caught yourself and slowed down right before you saw the police officer coming the other way? Or saw them too late and slammed on the brakes hoping to avoid the ticket? And as you pass them, knowing that you've just been doing something wrong, that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach grows and grows until you wonder, are they turning around? Are they following me? You look in your mirrors and worry. For the, you sweat for the next 10 minutes. This is exactly what will eventually catch up with those who oppress God's people. They know what is coming for all who do not 
repent and turn from their sin into Christ. They know that the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. They know deep in their bones that they are not righteous, and this is a problem. They know that justice is coming. But in their hardness of heart, they refuse to bow the knee to Christ. They refuse to repent and turn from their sin. They still hate God and all who stand with Him. And so they shame the plans of the poor. That is, they mock and humiliate anyone who trusts in the Lord. They criticize anyone who would be so backward and stupid as to believe that there is a God and that He has spoken. They are especially enraged that anyone would believe that God has spoken with so much authority that everyone, everywhere, must obey. At best, they will say, you can have your religion, but don't push it on me. You, can, you can't tell me what to do. It's hateful to force your views on others. But what they must understand and what we must understand, what all people everywhere must hear and understand is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that to call people to repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is to obey Jesus Christ himself. To do this is to stand in opposition to the fool. It is to say there is a God and he has spoken. He has spoken in creation as we saw in Romans 1. His eternal power and divine nature can be seen just by looking. Even with the organ he created us, he created for us to see with. You cannot look at an eyeball and honestly conclude that this thing came about by time plus chance. You cannot look at a sunset with that eyeball and conclude that we are all alone on a rock hurtling through space with no purpose and no destination. You just can't. By what he has made, he tells us that he is there. And the conscience he has given us tells us that we have a sin problem, even if we don't call it that. Humanity instinctively knows that there is something wrong deep inside of us. We know that, there are, that things are not as they should be. We long for a way to fix it, and we stuff all kinds of things in there to try to fill it up. But nothing will fill it up. We must be fixed from the inside out by someone who can actually fix us. This is why David cries out at the end of the psalm, the first half of verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. David feels the need for salvation, and he calls out to the Lord, There is evil all around me and even inside me. Lord, you must save me. You must deliver me. You must deliver your people. And God did. In his grace, God has spoken in nature and in his word, telling us who he is, what he is like, and what he requires to be made right with him. That in itself is more than we deserve. God diagnoses the problem. You are sinners. But he doesn't stop there. He also gives us his perfect law, but he doesn't stop there. As the writer to the Hebrews says as he he begins his letter, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is how we know for sure that there is a God. This is how we know that he knows and pays attention to his creation because he sent his son. Not just to tell us what to do, but to do what we could not. And not just to do what we could not, but to do it for us, for his people. He did it all the way. He atoned for all the sins of all his people forever, so much so that the work is done and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
Do you see the Messiah has come from Zion, God's holy hill? He has come and done what we could not do. He has come that we might be changed by His Spirit. He grabs sinners by the heart and makes them new. We're not talking about basically good people who just need a little help to get over the hump. We're talking about sinners, fools, atheists, who hate Him, who despise His people and defy His law. These are the people He saves. Before they ever turn to Him, He reaches out and says, You are mine. I will have you. And He makes their dead hearts live. He gives them faith and causes them to love who they once hated and hate what they once loved. Is that not good news? It must be, because there is no other way that the fools we saw in this psalm could ever come to Him. And don't be mistaken, we were all that fool. And the only way out of that foolishness is to be taught by God Himself. There are only two options, knowledge and foolishness. Fools, those who have no knowledge, choose slavery. But those who are taught the wisdom of God by God Himself cry to be rescued from it. This is not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God. As we read in Sunday school, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells the church, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We become wise in Christ. We become wise when by grace through faith we are brought into the very family of God. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the end of Psalm 14. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. How can we not rejoice? How can we not be glad? We have been brought from death to life, from darkened understanding of the world to the very wisdom of God. Let us rejoice, let us be glad. In Him. Let's pray. Father, let us not be the fool who, though he has the appearance of godliness, denies its power. Let us not mimic the sounds of faith, but then live in a way that shows our true disregard for you and your commandments. Let us not be occupied with ourselves, but let us seek you. Let us seek knowledge and wisdom in your word. Make us new in Christ. Cause us, O Lord, to love you and desire you above all else. Help us to rejoice in you, to rejoice in our salvation. Father, we pray that if there are those here still caught up in the foolishness of the world, that you would call them to yourself, that you would grant them repentance and faith, that you would restore them to yourself, that you would be glorified in their salvation and that we would rejoice in it. For our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen.